Welcome to this special episode of the History of European Theatre podcast. Ian McKellen's Hamlet, A Return to Theatre. Last Monday night marked a return to the theatre for me. Socially distanced and masked, it's true, but I had the privilege of doing it in the company of Sir Ian McKellen and his fellow cast members who've taken up residence in my local theatre for most of the rest of the year. My last full-on theatre experience had been in February 2020 to see Carol Churchill's strangely haunting short piece, A Number. And before that, we'd had a golden few months in the theatre for some 60s kitchen sink nostalgia with a taste of honey and the musicals Come From Away and The Girl From The North Country. Two very different shows, but both innovative and highly enjoyable. But then the pandemic shutters came down. Stoppard's Leopoldstadt postponed and perhaps most painfully of all, the stage version of the excellent Shakespeare comedy Upstart Crow was gone just a few days before we were due to be there to see it. So apart from a couple of semi-staged readings locally last October during an abortive attempt to open up again, the in-person theatre experience had been denied to us, and we could only do our bit through The Shows Must Go On and NT Live Archive to try to help out struggling actors and creatives. We were not alone in this, of course, so last night was quite a night for us, and I'm sure for all concerned. And Ian McKellen doing Hamlet. At 82, he's the oldest Hamlet seen in the UK. Something not to be missed, surely. The pre-show publicity had revolved around this being an age-blind production, but it's also gender-blind and colour-blind. One very notable thing about the production that's well worth mentioning up front is the young and diverse cast that Sir Ian and director Sean Mathias have gathered around them. But the big question is, of course, what is an octogenarian Hamlet like? Does it work? Inevitably, perhaps the answer is yes and no. But for me, the yes outweighs the no. McKellen is one of the best, if not the best, Shakespearean actor of his generation, and he is that primarily because of the way he speaks the bard's verse. He somehow creates a speech pattern that carries with it all his years of experience, yet also manages to sound, well, casual. He goes for meaning and understanding rather than strict adherence to the metre and the cadence of the prose and poetry. But the effect is much more subtle than that makes it sound. He doesn't ignore or lose the rhythm of the piece at all, but makes it sound quite natural, which is quite an achievement. Some lines, some of the most famous lines, are almost thrown away. To be or not to be was delivered to the back of a high chair. Nothing wrong with deciding to make that an intimate speech, just between Horatio and Hamlet, but it is a central speech to the play for a reason, the moment when we really begin to get close to Hamlet's thoughts, and it deserves more than it was given here. Having said that, it's in keeping with the character of Sir Ian's Hamlet, portrayed here as a very intimate and casual man. He avoids the Hamlet who wears his innermost life on his sleeve, where his melancholy can veer into the melodramatic. And that's a good thing. Hamlet has fascinated down the centuries precisely because he is a complex human being, full of confliction despite his quick mind and clever quips. He is, after all, the spoilt son of a king, who expects to be the centre of attention. He can and does frequently tell his friends and the other courtiers to leave him alone and they comply. And it's not only Sir Ian's ability with language that makes him stand out. He moves around the stage with a fluidity that belies his years and makes younger men, including myself, quite jealous. In this production, the representation of Elsinore Castle is a suitably dark and brooding affair. It is explicitly for Hamlet a prison. And that is certainly the vibe here. A metal framework of stairs and walkways that clang with every step creates a cold atmosphere. 
We can feel that there is little love to be had in this dark and misty place, and on the occasions when the set is more brightly lit, it's with a cold and starkly bright strip lighting that does nothing to lift the atmosphere. McKellen's Hamlet may run up and down the staircases and across the gallery more easily than some of the younger cast members seem to manage, but he is a man trapped by the events that precede the action of the play, which he has no control over until he manages to change that. I first saw McKellen on stage in 1988, when he was still just under 50, in Alan Akebourne's Henceforward. He still has the same wiry frame and moves around the stage with an ease that I remember he had more than 30 years ago. Apart from a rather truncated fencing bout at the end of the play, there's no apparent concession to age. The recognisable traits are all there, the hands thrust deep into the pockets, the shoulders that rise and rise until you wonder that they will ever stop but wisely, never a hint of Gandalf or Magneto. The other time I've seen Sir Ian on stage is much more recent. He played an early night on the tour of his one-man show to celebrate his 80th birthday in the same local theatre, a tour that got extended repeatedly and ended up with an originally unplanned West End run at the Harold Pinter Theatre, thanks to its and his popularity. And I was lucky enough, well, quick enough on the ticket website to be there. It was undoubtedly one of the best evenings in the theatre that I have ever experienced. To see an actor of such experience and still at the top of his game was truly an event. He held us captivated with a structured jaunt through his life and career with chunks of Shakespeare, Tolkien and the X-Men and more. At one point he got out an old school book where he had written about his hobbies and said, Yes, anything to do with the theatre pleases me. He certainly continued to express that love in spades that evening. You could have heard the proverbial pin drop in the auditorium, and given more than a few squeaky seats that we usually have to contend with, that's quite something. There is a filmed version of the show from the West End running on Amazon Prime at the moment, and you really should watch it if you have the chance. But I digress. Back to Hamlet. As the play opened, we were all, of course, watching to see how the age differentials work. Perhaps an odd directional choice was to have Hamlet deliver the second scene of the play and the lines about tutu solid flesh while pumping away briefly on a static exercise bike. That smelt a bit of the gentleman protesting too much and jarred. But once we got further into the play, the ageing was mostly truly blind, as we were swept along by the language. Any oddness in this respect was reduced to moments, like greeting his clearly much younger student friends Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, or after killing Polonius when he gets up close and personal to his much younger mother. The ghost, played by Francesca Annis, is more gender-neutral than female, and good use is made of some ghostly miking up. For the other smaller parts, the gender of the casting is truly irrelevant. There were some other directional choices that niggled. Jenny Seagrove's Gertrude spoke with a Danish accent, but was the only cast member to do so, and I found it rather distracting. And Stephen Burkov's Polonius, while not out of character for the fussy, pedantic old man, was maybe rather too free with pauses, elongations and repetitions within his lines. I have to admit, though, he did get the biggest laughs of the evening, so maybe it was just me who took against him. After the killing of Polonius, behind a tightly packed rail of dresses and coats rather than the traditional arras, we get to the inevitable spiral of the revenge tragedy, when we know that the body count was going to be high by the end of the play, and Hamlet is the orchestrator of all this. The arrival of the players is a high point. They are a lively and diverse troupe, who make up the rather repetitive dumb show and play within the play enjoyable to watch. 
As the first half closes, Hamlet descends through the stage floor, leaving us no doubt as to his ultimate destination. We, on the other hand, only descend to the bar to collect pre-ordered drinks and scurry back to our seats, no lingering allowed. While we drink and nibble a crisp or two, we discuss the play and are allowed to be relieved of the mask, but they're soon back on. Behind us in the mid-stalls, that's the royal stalls as they're known here, after all, the Queen is sitting at home just across the street from the theatre, is an empty row, and beyond that, a family outing of parents and two teenagers. Both youngsters are enthusing about the play and checking plot points with their parents. It's great to hear lively debate about theatre again. The second half opens with breezy intent. The first half of the play is inevitably rather long, something that feels more acute here thanks to the slightly lacklustre pace of the first few scenes, but now we are on the roller coaster to the end. Ophelia is a striking presence whenever she's on stage. Her singing is strong and the arrangements of her Songs of Madness, always a difficult part of Shakespeare in my book, are modern and catch the moment and her declining spirits well. Yorick's skull is pulled from the earth again and the gravedigger reminds us that Hamlet is about 30 with a wry smile. With Ophelia buried, Claudius, played with masterful command by Jonathan Hyde, lays his last plan for Hamlet and we get to the final brief fencing match. All the following deaths are suitably dramatic, verging on the comic. We end with Horatio wishing the angels to sing Hamlet to his rest, missing the confirmation of Rosencant's and Guildenstern's deaths at the hands of the English and the final entrance of Fortinbras as he sweeps in to take control of the situation and the country. That omission gives the ending quite a different tone, confirming the story as rather personal, more a drama of family dysfunction than one of the corruptions of the powerful, by removing the political overtones that a different production would pick out. An inevitable and deserved standing ovation for Sir Ian and the cast. The theatre capacity is usually 850 people, but of course, until mid-July, the restrictions mean the capacity is much reduced, at least halved, I would guess. But as we spilled out of the building, trying to keep some distance from each other, the overwhelming feelings were of gratitude that we'd been part of that evening, and hope that this was indeed the start of a true return to the theatre, and that this latest round of plague closure was indeed coming to an end. It's a thought-provoking production, but not for the reasons one might expect, and I for one think that Sir Ian has done his reputation no harm at all, and say a hearty bravo to him for taking this on. Roll on September, when we will be treated to the same company playing the Cherry Orchard, where, I sincerely hope, we'll be crammed into the theatre, one of 850, just like we used to be. Sir Ian will be playing the age-appropriate family servant, something to look forward to. Welcome back, theatre. It's been a long time. Thank you.